Hey, this is Stephanie Serrano, and you're listening to ONA On Air, a podcast from the Online News Association. Are you a mom? Maybe you're ready to become one, or you're just a human interested in gender equality. In this episode, we're talking about motherhood, redefining what the working mother looks like, how the media portrays moms, how newsrooms can end an anti-mom bias. All of these articles take an approach that it's your individual responsibility to figure out whatever it is that's tough and that there's no larger social forces at play that we've discussed. Like if you just employed this lunch packing strategy, it's all going to work out for you. It doesn't matter that you don't have paid family leave. It doesn't matter that you don't have equality in your home. It doesn't matter that you're not able to get promoted because of anti-mom bias. Lunch packing strategies. That's what's going to fix this for us. That's Catherine Goldstein. She's an entrepreneur, a researcher, a mom, a woman, and the creator of the Double Shift podcast. And this year, she spoke about bringing all of these identities together. Catherine was in her early 30s, thriving as a professional journalist. But something, or rather someone, was about to cross her path, a baby boy named Asher. The challenges of motherhood weren't what she expected. On top of being a new mother, her son had a serious kidney complication and underwent surgery a few times during her maternity leave. And returning to work, that wasn't easy either. In her presentation, she talks about all of these things and how they impacted her life. I caught up with Catherine after to dig deeper. You talked about how before your pregnancy, you were kind of at the peak of your career. And then getting back into your career, you felt like you lost your identity. How does somebody identify when they've lost their identity and how do you get it back? I think this is a huge question for so many mothers because I think even if everything goes great for you, becoming a mother is a huge identity shift. I think it took me a couple of years to really start to feel comfortable in what I wanted to do. And I think part of that was that my whole 20s was really about how high on how high can I climb on the ladder, the prestigious places I worked, how much money I was going to make. And I feel now, um, a couple years later, I don't work anywhere prestigious. I work for myself. And I don't make a lot of money. And I don't um, have a lot of these external trappings of success, which were really, really important to me in my 20s. But my work gives my life meaning in a way that I never had when I worked for big companies. You touched on um, anti-mom bias. Can you explain what that is? Anti-mom bias is... The belief that because someone is a mother, they're less capable in their professional lives. And this manifests itself in workplaces all the time. It manifests itself in hiring. It manifests itself in who gets opportunities. And, you know, it can be very subtle. Some of these, some of these cases can be grounds for, you know, illegal discrimination. But also sometimes it's just ways we think about mothers. We often view mothers as less committed to their jobs. We view them as less efficient, even when they're more efficient. We're more likely to judge mothers harshly for saying, having to leave early to pick up a kid than we are for a father or a childless person. So a lot of these ideas are very deeply ingrained in us because as a society, we haven't fully reconciled the belief that um, mothers should be working at all. 
So you created Double Shift, which is a podcast. How is this different than other motherhood outlets? Um, We're really focused on the identity and experience of being a working mother and not focused on parenting strategies, tips and tricks, or sort of like the nuts and bolts of parenting. And it's reported and it's storytelling based. Can you give me an example of one of your favorite stories? It's hard to pick a favorite episode because it's like picking a favorite child, but... I love this episode we did on a black Muslim sex educator who's a mother of four who really introduced some really radical ideas about what self-care truly means and postpartum bodies. And I I just, um, I feel like people really resonate with that story. I want to play a short clip from that story. It's titled, Let's Talk About Sex, Baby. It was my second child. Because I tore with the first child, I had to get more stitches with the second child, internal and external stitches. And for a long time, it affected how I looked at my body. I felt as if I was broken. Sex was very painful. And I wasn't really in the mindset of of having sex because orgasms are extremely mental. Sexual stimulation is, is a mental exercise. It has something to do with the physical. But for me and for a lot of women, for a lot of people, it's very mental. So if there was a span of about five years where I just was in a daze. I was just a zombie. I was having sex, but it wasn't good sex. I didn't like my body. I didn't like to look at my body. The bigger thing that I would like to see the media doing is telling more nuanced stories, devoting real reporting um, resources into telling stories about motherhood that don't fit these classic molds. And so we kind of talked about how you can change the environment of your newsroom. Somebody asked you, you know, it's not working. I had all these emails that I'm sending and people are complaining, but nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. Why isn't anything happening? I think that there's a lot to be said for tactics. Like basically, I believe the way to be effective is for women to not just individually complain, but really organize together. I mean, it's the same idea like why unions are effective. It's the same idea for you know, why collective bargaining is effective. There's power in numbers. So it's not just having a lot of people complain, but a lot of people stand behind concrete ideas, I think is is really a powerful idea. But I've talked to so many women who feel almost ashamed or they're scared to say that they're a mom. The reason that they're they're scared to even talk about being a mom or wanting to become a mom is because of this anti-mom bias, that they're worried that it's going to hurt their career. And they are not wrong. Being a mom statistically hurts your earning power. We're not going to get where we want to go by everyone just being quiet and making this a quiet personal problem. The New York Times op-ed I wrote about a year and a half ago asked, like, when's there going to be a mom's, a mom's too moment? When, when is there going to be a me too moment for moms? And I actually think we've had more of that. There's been a lot more reporting on job discrimination. There's been a lot more people speaking up with their names about being mistreated as moms in the workplace. And so we're at a moment in the culture where people are finally listening to women, including mothers. And so I think that some of that we just need to be quiet and get through this is starting, the culture is starting to change. That was Katherine Goldstein, creator and host of The Double Shift. If you enjoyed that conversation, don't go anywhere. Katherine's full ONA presentation is up next. It's been fun. I'm Stephanie Serrano for ONA On Air by the Online News Association. Peace. I'm Katherine Goldstein. Today we're talking about motherhood living it in newsrooms and covering it in the world. And um, I'm the creator and host of a podcast called The Double Shift, which is a show about a new generation of working mothers. So um, I'm very excited to give this talk here 
um, because I'm, I'm excited to talk to people who are influential in media about this topic because I'm, I'm going to share some pretty big and radical ideas about changing how we all think about, uh, changing how we think about covering motherhood and also sort of connecting that to um, concrete ideas about how we can change newsrooms. Because um, how we cover motherhood and how newsrooms are run are deeply interconnected. So um, we're going to get into uh, some very big picture ideas and some also some very practical things as well. The reason that this session is about motherhood and I'm not, it's not about parenthood is because um, mothers are so underrepresented in decision-making power in media and in basically every industry. So um, women make up two-thirds of journalism school graduates, and yet the number of women in leadership positions in news organizations has been at about 37% since the 1980s. So not a huge amount of even though more and more women are going into journalism, the same number of women are making it to influential positions. Um, and also according to extensive research, um, men and fathers do not experience the same job discrimination, bias in the workplace, and economic consequences that mothers do. Um, and we're gonna get to more of that later in this talk. Um, but first, uh, we're all journalists and we all appreciate good stories. So um, I'm going to start a little bit of, of my own story and how I got into this work. So um, this picture is from early 2015. And I was a successful early 30s uh, journalism media professional. I had been all in on Lean In. And I really uh, believed that you know, as long as I stood up and raised my hand and worked really hard, there was going to be nothing that would hold me back in my career. So here I am um, taking Instagram photos from the 42nd floor of the New World Trade Center of a beautiful sunset of the Statue of Liberty living my best life. And but what you can't tell about this photo is that I'm about 10 weeks pregnant and I had no idea how much my life would dramatically change over the course of the next year. So um, my son Asher was born in July of 2015, and that brought all of the familiar new mother experiences of uh, overwhelm and excitement and um, sort of just general uh, not knowing about this whole new role I was stepping into. But in addition to all that normal new mother, new parent stuff, um, we had some additional challenges because when we were, he was six weeks old, we found out he had some serious problems with his kidneys and he needed immediate surgery. And he was um, hospitalized a few times while I was on my maternity leave. So, um, you know, thinking back on that time, I, I really feel like it was a very deeply traumatic experience. And many people have traumatic experiences in their children's early life, but I really didn't, hadn't had the time or space to really process what this meant for me as a mother and you know, everything that had happened. But when my maternity leave was up, I didn't even consider asking for more time because I was so worried about that other people would think that I wasn't committed to my job or that um, you know, somehow I couldn't handle what it was gonna mean to be a working mother. Basically, <laughs> I remember on my first day back at work, my head was so out of the game that I missed my office subway stop. Like I couldn't remember which subway stop it was. So um, just as sort of my beginnings of motherhood were a little rocky, my return to work did not go well. And that is a long story for another day. 
But um, this photo, which I'm taken back to, it's funny because, you know, Instagram hides everything, right? Because this photo looks like the happiest family enjoying a winter snow. And we're sitting on the stoop of our brownstone and everyone's looking so idyllic. And this actually, whenever I see this photo, I'm taken back to one of the, like, the toughest times of my life. Because I see this photo and I had just lost that high power job. And I felt like I had no sense of who I was anymore. And I felt like a total failure. And I remember thinking I had no idea what was next for me. And I felt like everybody had this working mom thing figured out except for me. And that I was just personally defective and personally a failure. So it took a little while to sort of figure out what was going to come next for me. But I have to say that a really important turning point in my career was that I was offered a Neiman Journalism Fellowship a few months after this happened, and that totally changed the course of my life. And I don't know if I'd still be a journalist had I not been given that tremendous opportunity and honor. So through my Neiman Journalism Fellowship, I started having the time and space to turn a journalistic mind towards the experience of being a working mother. And um, I started to uncover that there were a lot of deep and complex issues working mothers face that involve public policy, workplace policy, healthcare, gender roles, and economics. And here's a really interesting graph from Vox News that um, I think can, this very simple graph, I think, tells a multitude of stories. So um, as you can see, men and women's earnings are around the same until the birth of a first child. Men's earnings basically remain unchanged, and women's earnings dramatically plummet and never recover. So what's happening in the white space between these two earning lines is a multitude of stories. There's so much to uncover in what's happening here. And I, that felt underexplored to me as I started looking to, into this a few years ago, and also that, felt, that still feels underexplored to me. So if you start to think about the experience of mothers in America, if you start to look at it a, at, through a lens of who has power in this country and who does not, the stories of, of motherhood in America become a lot more interesting. And it becomes a lot more complex than a lot of the stories that are written about mothers in America. So the story of motherhood in America is a story about money and power and marginalization and how that affects politics and public policy and health come, I'm sorry, and uh, healthcare and outcomes for our kids and who grows up in poverty. All of that is about this is all of that is wrapped up in the story of the motherhood in America. And so there's so many stories that I believe we are missing. So I believe this is also not just an economic question, but a human and civil rights question that intersects with all sorts of different areas of public policy. So some of you may be familiar with this statistic that 25% of women go back to work within two weeks of giving birth, which um, basically just chills me every time I say it and read it. But I also want to remind you of what kind of country we live in. So because we have no public policy that creates paid family leave, um, we actually have better public policy to protect dogs from being separated from their mothers in 13 states 
than we do to protect the health and well-being of babies and their mothers. That is the kind of public policy um, importance we place on mothers in America. So, and, and still, I believe this is a, a, a truly a civil rights issue and a human rights issue of our time. And yet we still consistently hear people talking about family leave as a perk, framed as, a, as something that is um, a nice to have for certain kinds of workers. And another thing that I have found is that there is so much richness in com and complexity to these topics. But as I began researching and reporting on these ideas a couple of years ago, I was noticing that most of the journalism about working motherhood was not in-depth and hard-hitting. It was usually a version of the same story about this woman. This woman is a stock photo woman, and she is, um, and basically she's, she's white, she's a white-collar worker, she lives in a big city, she um, is well-educated, and she's beautiful, and she has a baby on her lap as she's typing on her laptop. And most of the stories about motherhood in America are a version of a story about this one, this woman. And there is coverage of motherhood in America. It's just not enough and it's not the right kind. So there's also a huge reliance on personal essays from a version of this woman as a sort of the only lens with which we see motherhood in America. So some of those essays can provide great content and insights, but, um, but that's really just, it's one very limited perspective. And um, you, me, you've all seen this essay. This is, it's headlined as something like, how I put my MBA to good use when hiring a nanny. Like that's the personal essay that we see over and over again and the kind of person who's writing it. So, um, so I wanna draw, uh, sort of dive into more about the problems I see in coverage. And I'm going to show you some other headlines. And these are all, all these headlines aren't personal essays. They're all articles, and they're all written by highly respected news organizations. There are no small blogs in the headlines I'm going to show you. I'm not calling them out specifically. Some of you probably work for these places. But, um, but uh, by the way, in the headlines I'm going to show you are so ubiquitous, it took me like half a second to find these headlines. This was not like a deep dive here. So... I'm curious to see if we have any good media critics in the room, and I want to see if anyone can guess why I object to this first headline. I'm a working mom. How do I not feel guilty? Why do you think I don't like this headline? Yes. Yes. It assumes the baseline existence for working mom is guilt, and so that is how, like, we couldn't exist in a world where working mothers don't feel guilty. And so here's how we combat that. Because that's like waking up, that's breathing, is it's feeling guilty. Anyone have ideas about why I am not into the second headline? This idea, the mental load of motherhood, motherhood never ends. Women reflect on the messy truth of being a mom. So basically, it's, I, I'm all for sharing a wide range of experiences and not sugarcoating things. But basically, this is a bunch of personalized experiences that reinforce the idea that motherhood is hard and that's nobody's responsibility except the mother. So it doesn't matter, it, 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 it leaves out any social context to why um, motherhood might be, you know, it's just sort of like, this is personally difficult for you and let's explore that. And it doesn't give any larger social context. 
For the working mom reporter, the juggle is real. So I have made an entire podcast about working mothers, and never once in the many hours of the show has the phrase juggle been uttered. And the reason is that I think juggle, I hate the word juggle. I think it's a terrible cliche that almost every article about working mothers use the, uses the word juggle. There is no agency in juggle. It's infantilizing. Juggle is something a clown does. Juggle, what juggle is often describing is executive level multitasking <laughs> or high achievement performance under intense pressure. That's what juggle is actually describing. Um, it's, not, it's not actually, uh, it's, it's, the word juggle is just incredibly demeaning to what working mothers actually do and accomplish. So this next, um, this next headline, does anyone have an idea about why I might not like this headline? <laughs> yeah, basically, obviously, being a working mother is terrible. And there is a single upside <laughs> that we have found, and that's surprising enough for an entire headline. So that's the framing with which we're covering working motherhood. What do you guys think of the word mamapreneur? I find it so offensive because basically, exactly, the default is that a real entrepreneur is a man. And um, a real entrepreneur is a man. And the way you be an entrepreneur is the way that men strive to be, an, to be entrepreneurs, which is through um, huge amounts of uh, like through if you're accepting venture capital money or you're trying to grow 3x in three years or, you know, you have the next product that's going to revolutionize XYZ and that you're in a not a real entrepreneur if you're trying to make money on your own um, that fits into your other life priorities. That's not a real entrepreneur. That's a mamapreneur. Um, so there's also... Um, Basically, telling like tips and tricks for working mothers is basically like an industrial complex. So there are 126 million search results on Google for advice for working moms. So like basically, um, there's a huge industry that's geared towards telling us what we should be doing differently. And, you know, this really is encapsulated in this next headline, four tips for the single working mom, because basically all of these articles take an approach that it's your individual responsibility to figure out whatever it is that's tough and that there's no larger social forces at play that we've discussed. And there's no larger, um, you know, and that that maybe, you know, basically if you um, if you like if you just employ this lunch packing strategy, it's all going to work out for you. It doesn't matter that you don't have paid family leave. It doesn't matter that you don't have equality in your home. It doesn't matter that you're not able to get promoted because of anti-mom bias. Lunch packing strategies. That's what's going to fix this for us. So, and basically, um, you know, it, all of this is sort of around this idea that mothers need to change and that this is a very, very consistent message and that we can 
the way we need to change is to life hack our way out of this situation that we find ourselves in. And it all sort of reinforces the social perception and our self-perception that there's something wrong with us. Why I wanted to create the, what became the double shift was to tell stories that you haven't heard before. And instead of tips and tricks and advice, the intellectual underpinning of the double shift is very different. It's to tell really diverse stories and it's to sort of suppose that maybe that there's nothing wrong with mothers. And so creating a media property that believes that there's nothing wrong with mothers is actually a radical idea. Um, and so I want to play you a clip that was from our uh, first season, and it was about, it was in an episode that was about co-working, a co-working and childcare um, community that was to get, a, like a co-work childcare community that was trying to reimagine what work and family looked like in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. And this, this quote is from um, Bridget Schulte, who is um, the director of the Better Life Lab at New America, who's very, who's been very, she was a sort of an expert in this larger reported piece, but she's been very influential in my thinking. And I want to play this clip for you. Women have changed about as much as they can. And now it's time for the workplace to change. And it's time for men to change. And it's time for policy to change. Women can't change anymore. <laughs> Women can't do anymore. You know, forget about having it all. They're doing it all. And it's exhausting. On the double shift, we tell, and some of you may have listened to the show, we tell stories about politicians, what it's really like for politicians with little kids to run for office. We've talked to sex worker moms, touring musicians, um, and are trying to tell very diverse stories from across the country that aren't being told. And um, this, this show is an indie hit, and really because this idea is so fresh that these and these stories are so overlooked and there and that so many audiences are hungry 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 um for a different uh version of a story about motherhood and also a story that's not about parenting we don't talk about parenting on the show ever and you know when i was pitching um this show to media executives there was a huge disconnect because they couldn't understand how you could have an entire show about working mothers that wasn't about parenting. It was like completely, um, it was inconceivable that we ha would have our own stories and identities separate from our children. So, you know, this idea that there's nothing wrong with mothers and that maybe we aren't all failures. Um, and it is, I think, a very a powerful idea and it's an underpinning of the work that I do. And I really believe that we are not all failures and that really it's America that's failing us. And, you know, I, I give talks um, in different places across the country about these ideas. And sometimes when I say that, that, um, um, you know, America is failing us and we are not failures, sometimes women start to cry when I say that. And the reason is because society never says that to us. And also, neither does the media. The media never says we're not failures. So, you know, you may be saying to me, Maybe some of you work on motherhood content. Maybe you guys are involved in lifestyle content that covers motherhood. And you might say to me, like, you know, those headlines that you showed, maybe they're problematic, but people want that content. People want tips and tricks. People are interested in advice, and that's what people want. But what I want to say is that hard-hitting stories about mothers are also popular. And real reporting about this is also viral. So this is um, a, 
an article I wrote about a year and a half ago in the New York Times, um, The Open Secret of Anti-Mom Bias at Work, um, which maybe some of you have read. And I don't think that I coined the term anti-mom bias, but this article popularized the term anti-mom bias. And um, it was among the most popular articles in the New York on the New York Times section when it came out. And people, are, I, I got the response I got to this article was unlike anything I'd ever written. Hundreds of emails and social interactions of people wanting to share their story and who felt like they'd finally been seen and their experiences at work. Um, but just to give a little primer, um, anti-mom bias is basically a very pernicious belief in our society and workplaces that because someone is a mother, it has a negative impact on their ability to function in society and do their job. And it's very similar to this academic term, maternal law, which has been, it's been in circulation, I think, since the 80s. So, um, you know, this work is popular. There is a hunger for these kind of topics that I think is being so overlooked in our newsrooms. And um, we, you know, Claire Kane Miller, who I really deeply admire, who writes for the New York Times, um, about motherhood and gender, really through an economic lens. It's always about the economics, and her stories are always some of the most popular stories in the New York Times. I think that there's, it's just such an underexplored topic that audiences are hungry for. And um, so, but I also think we need more coverage that is completely reframed, and things that are in between sort of hard-hitting investigations and just total life-hacky service journalism. Like, there's also a middle there. And I think that's another area that we're really missing. Um, Danny McLean has done some really great work on this. And there was a recently a wonderful piece in the Washington Post on black motherhood and joy, because almost all the media about black motherhood um, from, from major outlets, there's definitely some smaller outlets that do a good job of this, but from major outlets is about maternal death rates and poverty. The, that's basically the only way that major outlets talk about black motherhood. And so this, this was a very, um, it was a personal essay that also had some reporting about telling different stories about black motherhood. Um, so maybe I've sold you, or maybe I haven't, on why we need to be telling different stories about motherhood, but we can't do this without changing the culture of who um, has power in newsrooms and who is running newsrooms, and who are the gatekeepers to decide what stories are going to be written and assigned and what, where resources are gonna be given. So, um, so uh, uh, about two years ago, I wrote this piece for Neiman Reports that really looked into how newsrooms need to think about better retaining, uh, specifically mothers, as sort of the next generation of, uh, of leaders and how you can't think about a diverse newsroom without thinking about mothers. And um, so we need positions of, we need people in positions of power to champion this kind of work because so few mothers get to those positions. It perpetuates all these marginalization, all this marginalization we've discussed. And it also affects gender equity all the way up and down the chain in newsrooms. So 80% um, of women become mothers. And I still hear from people all the time who um, basically feel like they have no role models in their workplace or their newsroom in how to go about becoming a mother and be a successful working mother. And basically, there's no strong network of women who are a little bit older to help guide them to the next step. And 
you know, we've been entering, women have been entering the workforce in large numbers since the 1970s. Um, but nearly 50 years later, women are still reinventing the wheel when it comes to motherhood. And I think that this is the constantly, this is like, this is the linchpin when everyone's like, I just don't understand why there's a gender wage gap still happening. I just don't understand why there aren't more women on Fortune 500, you know, boards. I just don't understand why their women aren't better represented in XYZ industry. It's because of motherhood. It's because of motherhood. It's because of motherhood. And it's sort of still seen as this unknowable thing. It's unknowable why women aren't making it. Something, something's happening in their early 30s. Maybe it was that graph I showed you at the beginning. Something, we can't know what it is. We can't know what it is, but something's happening. I want to give some really sort of concrete uh, examples about um, how to get met mothers better supported and represented in newsrooms that I hope you all um, will think about and take back to your newsrooms and maybe implement if you're in that position of power in your newsrooms. Um, so basically, I could talk for an hour just about this slide, <laughs> but we have we've you know we have so many so much different ground to cover that I'm going to sort of speed through some of this. But I've actually created an um, ONA. I created on my website, and I'll show at the end of it, a um, page that is just resources of all the articles I've talked about and all the different resources that I mentioned that is on the Double Shifts website that you can read up on and, and take back to your newsrooms. So, um, so because so few mothers get to the, these top positions, it perpetuates all this marginalization we discussed. And so, you know, the first, this is what I'm going to talk about now is like the baseline. Like we can't talk about next level until newsrooms have addressed these things right here. So um, I think every newsroom needs to think thoughtfully about what their family leave policy is. And it's not just good enough to, it's not good enough to ha just have one at all. It needs to be much more thoughtful. It needs to be gender neutral. It needs to include um, same sex couples adoptive parents, and it also really needs to encourage paternity leave, which I'll talk about a little bit more. But basically in America, because the family leave situation is so terrible, we're conditioned to believe that if we have any leave at all, um, we're lucky, quote, lucky, and we should be grateful, and we should just shut up and accept whatever we're given. That's the message about family leave in this country. Like, if you get six weeks paid leave, then you should shut up and be grateful. If you, get, if you get 10 weeks paid leave, you should shut up and be grateful. And I don't think that we're gonna get where we need to go with the attitude that we should just accept things for how they are. So um, both in, in Where Are the Mothers and our season finale of The Double Shift, we talk extensively about how the women of the New York Times um, created much better family leave policies and advocated for it and didn't accept that it was just, just good enough leave. Um, so, I really believe when you're trying to make change in your organization, there's a lot of power in numbers. And at power in numbers is really helpful in advocacy. And you shouldn't, one person saying something is a complaint that can be easily brushed off. Groups of people coming together who are well organized with data and um, ideas about what needs to change and saying that we're not just going to accept the way things are, it seems to be the most effective way to change organizations in general and also newsrooms. And also, um, the women of the Boston Globe actually used Where Are the Mothers as a blueprint for how to get better family leave, and they, they got it. So I'm also a very big advocate for uh, companies 
giving um, giving paternity leave and encouraging and or mandating that men take paternity leave. If there were any men here, I would tell them that <laughs> taking paternity leave is the most feminist thing that any man can do because it reduces bias against mothers in the workplace and it um, creates more empathy for working mothers and uh, more understanding for other people with caregiving responsibilities. And it creates more gender equity within their own home. There's a, a lot of really amazing data about this that basically, if you're like, what's the one fix? What's the one thing you could do to improve <laughs> lives for working mothers? You know, paternity, ha giving real paternity leave and creating a culture where men take it, because some companies have it and then nobody takes it, um, would be very high on my list as something that can truly have a huge cultural impact. Um, I'm also a big believer that transparency about caregiving responsibilities is really important. So when people who are in power say, oh, I've got to sneak off for a late meeting, but really they're doing a daycare pickup, that um, actually being honest about that creates a culture where people can feel like that they are more supported in their caregiving responsibilities and sort of can create a lot more comfort and a lot more just acceptance of the reality of what it means to, you know, have human needs and have caretaking respons caregiving responsibilities. And so, you know, not every, not, you know, family leave and, you know, young childcare and newborn childcare is really important, but, um, you know, not everyone has children, but almost everyone has caregiving <laughs> responsibilities at some point in their lives. Um, so like about, I think it's 29% of the entire U.S. population spends significant time caring for an elderly or disabled family member in any given year, which is a huge number. So even if you never have children, it's very likely you may have an elderly or disabled parent or a disabled sibling that you will at some point have to take care of. So I really believe that telling, you know, creating workplaces that support all caregiving responsibilities and also... Uh, this, I think, actually reduces bias against mothers in the workplace. And I also believe that we should, everyone has interests outside of work. And it shouldn't be like the mothers get special treatment because they have to pick up their kids. Or the mothers are allowed to do this and nobody else is allowed to do this. Like telling someone that they can't take off for a treasured college reunion, but the same, uh, you know, that a parent can take off for a family vacation, um, doesn't actually create a diverse workforce. And we should value people's lives and interests outside of work, whether they're child-related or not. And basically, I really believe that if news organizations are operating in a 1950s-style office environment that acts like everybody is a white dude who has no caretaking responsibilities, like that's who's going to be working in your newsroom. So I think thinking expansively about care caregiving and what that means in a newsroom is really important and not just like, okay, well, moms can leave at 5.30 for pickups because that ultimately hinders our careers because it's seen as we're not, we're not serious. We're always gonna be on the mommy track. But if everybody has to leave to do kid, to do kid stuff or everybody is understood to have caretaking, caregiving responsibilities, it can have a really big impact. So that was the baseline and this is um, the next level. So if your newsroom has done most, most or all of the things on the first slide, I think these are the things to think about for the next, the next step. Um, unfortunately, part of the media consolidation that we see in this country means that 
media companies are in the most expensive places to live in the country, which are also the most expensive places for childcare. So working to address the cost of childcare, there are some news outlets that, um, like ESPN and the Sacramento Bee, who have had on-site childcare that have been hugely helpful in retaining their workforce. Um, and, you know, I understand that every newsroom feels strapped and every newsroom has to make tough financial decisions, but investing in things like helping subsidize childcare can really be an investment in the longevity of your workforce and your loyalty and the retention of the kind of people that you want to grow with you in an organization. Um, on the flip side, flexibility and flexible work cost companies nothing and often um, can create more productivity and greatly increase employee, employee happiness and is consistently rated as something that not only parents but younger workers are really striving for. So that's something that creating those policies and allowing people to take advantage of working from home or telecommuting um, is something that costs nothing and can also really support working parents. Um, there's been some really, there's a really interesting article out, I think, last week about conference support for childcare and sort of helping people think more holistically about who has the means to pay for the childcare when they go on to a conference, or how can we think about supporting parents who want to travel, providing um, childcare at conferences, or providing stipends for people who are going to conferences and need additional childcare is, I think, another sort of next level thing to think about. And then there's also um, services like um, Milk Stork, which is a breast milk shipping company that I think makes a really big difference for really big difference for reporting for moms who travel a lot, who are still nursing and reporting from all over the country. Um, and then backup care services like care.com and stuff like that, that let you sort of get, you know, immediate sort of backup care needs make a huge difference for working parents. Um, but probably the most important thing I think everyone needs to do, and I hope everyone in this room will do, is, um, is combat and disrupt anti-mom bias in your workplace. So um, basically, uh, we need to disrupt this when we see it. So if someone says, I don't think that that mom will want to go to ONA this year. I'm sure she's really busy at home with her kids. You say why don't we in let, invite her to come and let her decide rather than deciding that for her? Or if someone, I feel like someone's having like a moment in the back about the realities of this happening, <laughs> just living, living the truth here. Um, if you're interviewing a job candidate and someone says, they seem really great, but you know, she just had a baby, so I'm not sure she's gonna be so focused on this position. You say, I, you know, I don't think that, um, is uh, that's that actually is illegal, by the way. Um, but uh, you know, saying like I don't think we should factor that in to her skills and abilities because actually mothers are actually proven to be more effective um, in terms of efficiency than other workers. Um, co combat that when you see it. Don't just grimace. Don't just smile and nod and walk away. Combat that when you see it because I really believe that. Um, we have to champion other mothers who are coming up behind us. And we need to fight for better policies, even if we are not mothers. Um, and we need to leave workplaces better than we found them for those of us who are mothers and came into workplaces that did not support us. So whether that's 
working on a better family leave policy, making a better lactation room, creating a better return to work policy, because unfortunately the way this works is that we leave this advocacy to the people who are most strapped. We leave, we leave the, a mess of a workplace to the people who, have, who are sleep deprived and have a newborn and are not ready to be back at work. And it's up to them to make it better for themselves and to figure it out on, our, on their own, rather than looking holistic, holistically about all the ways we can change workplaces. So if we're in a place in our lives where we're no longer sleep deprived and we have the bandwidth to think about how our workplaces can be better, we should really think about how to make it better for the women who are coming after us. And I, I really believe that if you are a high status worker who got a special deal, you got an extra month of maternity leave, you got a special work from home deal, I, I don't, this, the, the, envi the environment is so tough that I understand all that, but advocate for everyone to get that too. Bring other people with you and don't just accept the deal for yourself. Try to fight to make it a reality for everybody. So, um, so I, I could actually give a whole different talk about the sexism that I have faced in doing this work and the huge obstacles I've had to overcome to get the double shift made and how dismissive people in the industry still are about this work. And basically, I think I'm one year into, ten, into about 10 years it's going to take for people to take this seriously. I'm in year one. I'm just finished year one. So, um, you know, media executives still tell me to my face that they think this work is really niche and that, you know, you know, in my point, in my be not belief, the data, the army of data behind me is that 80% of women become mothers and over a million women, over a million millennial women are becoming mothers every year. So I don't think it's niche. I don't think this is just something that is only of concern to a very small group. Um, I think NBA basketball is niche. I mean, <laughs> I think tech gadgets are niche, and I just don't find those interesting. But somehow those are considered general interest because men are interested in them. So, um, you know, so I, there's a, still a lot of work to be done, but all of you can help by creating more inclusive newsrooms and more thoughtful coverage. And this isn't about the personal success of my individual projects, but a much larger movement to change how society sees mothers and how we see ourselves. And I invite you all to be a part of it. Thank you. <laughs>